Christmas Day, 1996, Lavernia, Texas. Patty Vaughn, a 32-year-old mother of three, vanishes without a trace, and her van is found abandoned by the side of the road the following day. According to her estranged husband, J.R. Vaughn, Patty had stormed out of the house following a heated argument, and J.R. raises some eyebrows by immediately filing for divorce. Traces of Patty's blood are found inside her van and house, and seem to indicate that she was a victim of foul play. While J.R. becomes the main person of interest, there is not enough evidence to file charges against him, and Patty's body is never found. After that, the trail went cold. Hello everyone and welcome to our latest episode of The Trail Went Cold. I'm your host Robin Warder and we've got an unsolved missing persons case to cover today, the 1996 disappearance of Patty Vaughn. Throughout the month of December, our podcast is going to be covering cold cases which took place around Christmas time and this particular episode is the tragic story of a mother who went missing on Christmas Day. If you're a fan of the true crime TV show Disappeared, you might have seen the episode they did about this case several years ago, and sadly, this type of story is all too common. We have a woman who was in the middle of an unhappy marriage and had recently separated from her husband, but just as she was discovering happiness again with another man, Patty vanished without a trace. Of course, suspicion instantly turned towards Patty's estranged husband, J.R. Vaughn, but without a body or enough direct evidence to implicate him, J.R. was able to attain custody of their three children and move away. While the solution to this case might seem cut and dried on the surface, there have been some interesting developments over the years, including DNA evidence which seems to point towards multiple people being involved. But the most important thing is that Patty is still a missing person after two decades, so this story definitely needs a resolution. However, before we get started, just a quick reminder that The Trail Went Cold is a weekly podcast which is currently available for download on several platforms, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Spotify. So if you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe to it, and please leave us a rating or review on any of those sites to help spread the word and garner us more exposure. The Trail Went Cold is on Patreon, so if you would like to learn how to support the show, please visit our page at patreon.com slash thetrailwentcold. For as little as $1 a month, you can garner access to exclusive rewards, which may include stickers and thank you cards, early access to episodes, and bonus content. So with all that out of the way, let us now explore the unsolved disappearance of Patty Vaughn. Our story begins in 1996 in Lavernia, Texas, a small town located in Wilson County, 30 miles east of San Antonio, and our central figure is 32-year-old Patty Brightwell Vaughn. For the past 11 years, Patty has been married to her husband, Jerry Ray Vaughn, who goes by the name J.R., 
and works as a building contractor. The couple have two sons, 8-year-old Ray and 6-year-old Tyler, and a 9-year-old daughter named Brittany, but their marriage has fallen apart. In October of that year, Patty and JR began a six-month trial separation. Patty and the three children remained at their house on Oak Park Road, while JR moved into an apartment in San Antonio. On Christmas Eve, Patty, who had loved singing since childhood, performed at a church service which was attended by JR and their children. After the service, the couple went their separate ways, while Patty took the kids to her aunt's house for a family gathering. In spite of their troubled relationship, Patty still wanted her children to spend Christmas Day with their father, so JR was going to come over to their house and have Christmas dinner with them that afternoon. After her separation from JR, Patty became romantically involved with a former boyfriend of hers named Gary, who joined Patty at her family gathering on Christmas Eve. Gary gave Patty a heart-shaped diamond necklace as a Christmas present, and she was described by her family as being happier than they had seen her in a long time. The plan was for Patty's aunt to watch over her children so she could spend Christmas night with Gary. But unfortunately, they never arrived at her aunt's place, and Patty never phoned anyone to cancel her plans, which seemed very uncharacteristic of her. The following morning, Patty also failed to show up for work at her employer, Quinny Electric. However, at around 1.30pm, Patty's 1991 Dodge Caravan would be discovered abandoned by the side of the road by her boss while he was returning to the office from lunch. The van was parked in Bear County on the shoulder of Texas State Highway Loop 1604 next to Farm Road 1937, approximately 15 miles from Patty's home. The location was also about 5 miles away from Quinney Electric, but strangely, Patty's boss and some of her co-workers had passed by this spot earlier that same morning and claimed the van was not parked there at that time. The van's left front tire was flat, and the exhaust manifold to the engine was still warm, which seemed to indicate that the van had been driven very recently. Patty's co-workers contacted JR and arranged for him to provide them with a spare set of keys for the van, and after changing the flat tire, they drove it to Quinney Electric. Meanwhile, after not hearing from Patty, her cousin Kathy attempted to contact the police to report her missing, but was told that because Patty was an adult, they could not do anything until she was gone for at least 72 hours. Later that evening, JR phoned Kathy to let her know he hadn't heard from Patty in over 24 hours and that her van had been found by the side of the road. When Kathy told JR that she had already attempted to contact the police, this caused him to get angry, as he told Kathy that it was too soon to do that and that she should have waited and let him handle things. It would turn out that the last person from Patty's family to hear from her was her sister, who phoned her up at her house at around 10.30 a.m. on Christmas morning. JR answered the phone, but when Patty took the receiver, her sister thought she sounded like she had been crying, though Patty tried to say it was just a cold. JR claimed that when he showed up at the residence on Christmas Day, he spent much of the day fighting with Patty, largely because he had recently found out about her new relationship with Gary. JR's sister Marilyn was supposed to show up to have Christmas dinner with them, but when Marilyn arrived, JR told her that Patty was inside the bedroom and didn't want to talk to anyone because she wasn't feeling well, so he asked Marilyn to take the three children to their other sister's house for Christmas dinner. After the kids left, JR claimed that he got into another heated argument with Patty before she stormed out of the house sometime after 6.30pm and drove away in her van. Patty apparently took her purse and keys with her when she left, but those items were never found. 
Of course, right from the outset, Patty's family was skeptical of that story, as they did not believe she would have abandoned her children on Christmas Day. Making the decision to separate from JR had been a major step for Patty, as he was known for being very controlling throughout their marriage, and while there were never any official complaints about physical abuse, people had remembered seeing bruises on Patty in the months prior to the separation. While they were married, JR had not allowed Patty to work until she got a job at Quinney Electric shortly before they split. According to Patty's boss, JR would often phone and harass her at work, causing her to leave the office in order to avoid conflict. During the family gathering on Christmas Eve, Patty had approached one of her cousins in the kitchen and asked if she knew how to get a restraining order, as she was apparently planning to file one the week after Christmas. Only a few days before Christmas, JR had written a letter to the landlord of his apartment building in San Antonio, announcing his intention to break his lease and move out as soon as possible. In fact, JR moved back into their house immediately following Patty's disappearance, and by December 27th, had changed the answering machine message so that it no longer had Patty's voice. But the most concerning thing about JR is that he decided to officially file for divorce from Patty on December 26th, the very day after she went missing. JR would later claim that he wasn't serious about divorcing her, he just wanted to attempt to scare Patty out of her relationship with Gary by presenting her with divorce papers. Anyway, the discovery of Patty's van finally convinced the Bear County Sheriff's Office to forego the mandatory 72-hour waiting period, and they performed a forensic search of the van on December 27th. While it had been found with a flat tire, there were no puncture marks in the tire, and tests would indicate that it had been deflated intentionally. Patty's family suspected that the scene had been staged to make it look like she had gotten a flat tire on Loop 1604 and was subsequently abducted by someone who pulled over to help her. The driver's seat was pushed all the way back, which was not the normal position for it to be in whenever Patty drove. Oddly, a red workman's jumpsuit which looked like it might belong to an automotive repair worker was found inside the van. It had an emblem containing the letters JM on the back, but as far as I can tell, it was never traced to anybody. Traces of blood were found under the rear seat, and luminol testing would show that someone had recently cleaned blood from the van and shampooed the carpeting. In fact, when the rear center seat was removed, it turned out the seat holders contained a significant amount of water. Nearly all of the fingerprints in the van had been wiped clean, including Patty's, and all that was found was one single set of prints which could not be matched to anyone. A search was conducted of the surrounding area where Patty's van was found. Search dogs tracked Patty's scent to a small pond on a ranch about two miles away, but a search of the pond turned up nothing, and there was no trace of Patty anywhere. A search of Patty's house would uncover more physical evidence which suggested that foul play had taken place, including small amounts of blood in the bedroom. Luminol testing would uncover what appeared to be traces of blood in the bathroom, on the bedroom floor, and on the wall adjacent to the bedroom door. The luminol also picked up shoe prints on the bathroom floor leading to the closet, as well as swipe marks on the bedroom floor. There were minute traces of blood inside a mop and a bucket found in the garage, which once again indicated that someone had attempted to clean up potential evidence. Surprisingly, J.R. and his sister Marilyn were allowed to stay in the house as it was being searched, and Marilyn often disrupted the evidence technicians while they were working. Believe it or not, the house was never cordoned off as a crime scene, even after the blood was found. Investigators wanted to perform DNA testing on the blood evidence, 
and needed to get blood samples from J.R. and his children. J.R. initially refused to cooperate and only agreed to consent to blood testing after a search warrant was obtained. The DNA test would eventually prove that the blood found in both the van and the house belonged to Patty. While J.R. initially agreed to be questioned by investigators, he soon stopped cooperating with them and refused to take a polygraph and would not allow his children to be questioned at all. He also made no attempt to assist in the search effort. On December 27th, Patty's mother, Patsy Wallace, went to the house to drop off a bunch of missing persons flyers for J.R. and the children to pass out. When Patsy returned there a few days later, the flyers were still sitting in the same place she had left them. By contrast, it's worth noting that Patty's boyfriend, Gary, fully cooperated with investigators, passed a polygraph test, and was heavily involved in the search for Patty. He claimed that the last time he saw Patty was on Christmas Eve, and seemed to have a solid alibi placing him with family members throughout Christmas Day. Gary was never considered a serious suspect, though he would later be killed in a tragic car accident. Right from the outset, Patty's family suspected that J.R. was responsible for her disappearance, and things reached a boiling point in February of 1997, when Patsy Wallace entered J.R.'s residence in the middle of the night and attacked him in the legs with a baseball bat. She was subsequently indicted for burglary and aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, though I've been unable to confirm if Patsy served any prison time. Without a body, it was difficult to build a case against J.R., but rumors started to circulate about where Patty might be. At the time Patty went missing, J.R. was working as a supervisor on a construction project building an elementary school in the town of Pleasanton, located over 40 miles away. Some of J.R.'s employees said that he personally oversaw the areas where concrete was being poured, which was not traditionally part of his job, so this created speculation that Patty's body might have been encased inside the foundation of the school while it was being built. With J.R.'s consent, a search of the school was performed in May of 1997, using ground-penetrating radar and a hole-boring machine in the concrete foundation. Tracking dogs were placed near the holes to detect the odor of methane, which would have emanated if there were any decomposing bodies encased there. However, the dogs never reacted to anything, and none of the core samples which were collected had any trace of methane. Records also showed that the concrete slab was poured on December 21, 1996, four days before Patty went missing, but the authorities wanted to check anyway, just in case the records were falsified. Over the years, the school has been searched on multiple occasions, and while ground-penetrating radar has occasionally detected anomalies under the concrete, nothing substantial has ever been found. The case came to a standstill, and Patty's family would express their criticism with the investigation. Right from the outset, it was held up with jurisdictional issues, because while Patty technically went missing from her home in Wilson County, her van was found in Bear County. J.R. got custody of the three children and eventually moved out of the area to South Texas, and Patty's family took note of the fact that they lived in close proximity to the Mexican border, which would have made it convenient for J.R. to flee the country if necessary. Within a few years, J.R. would get remarried and move with the children to Colorado. In 2005, J.R. had Patty declared legally dead in order to collect on her life insurance, but Patty's family went to court to block this, and filed a wrongful death civil suit against him. However, they feared that costing J.R. a lot of money would be detrimental to Patty's children, so they ultimately reached a settlement, 
where Patty's life insurance money would go into a trust fund for the children's education. In 2006, the owner of a piece of property in Pleasanton told authorities that he remembered seeing the construction company JR worked for digging a pit there around the time Patty went missing. The company had leased the land in order to dump excess material like trash and debris. Since the alleged spot where the pit was dug was right next to a cemetery, it was impossible for cadaver dogs to pick up a proper scent, so a search of the property ultimately turned up no evidence. Patty's family began to suspect that her body might have actually been buried in the backyard of her former home, as a trash pit was dug there four months before she disappeared, and neighbors recalled hearing what sounded like heavy equipment on Christmas night in 1996. However, the new owners of the property refused to cooperate and consent to a search for years, so police did not actually dig up the trash pit until 2014, but were unable to find anything. In 2012, new DNA testing was performed on some undisclosed items found in Patty's van, and a surprising discovery was made. There were traces of female DNA which did not belong to Patty or anyone related to her. One of the investigators stated that he believed he knew who this female DNA might belong to, but without probable cause, they would be unable to obtain DNA samples from that person to look into a possible match. The Bear County Sheriff's Office have made it clear that while they still consider JR to be the main person of interest in Patty's disappearance, they believe that multiple people were involved in covering up the crime, though no one else has ever been publicly named. J.R. eventually got divorced from his second wife and moved to Boise, Idaho, where he apparently resides under a different name. Unfortunately, the three Vaughn children became completely estranged from Patty's side of the family and have not spoken with any of them since Patty went missing. Now that they're all grown adults in their 30s, the family hopes they might come forward someday if they have any information about what happened to their mother. But that is yet to happen, and after two decades... Patty Vaughn continues to remain a missing person. So I guess you could say, the trail went cold. So you may have already noticed that the date Patty went missing, December 25th, 1996, just happened to coincide with the start of what is probably the most famous unsolved cold case of the modern era, the murder of John Benet Ramsey. Patty's family claims that they got the media interested in her case, and the major networks were initially prepared to give her coverage, but as you can imagine, once John Benet's murder reached the spotlight, Patty's disappearance was completely pushed to the side. While it still got a decent amount of coverage in the local Texas media, the case really didn't receive national exposure until it was featured on an episode of Disappeared in March of 2011, but by that point, over 14 years had passed. Now, whenever I cover cases in which someone has been murdered or gone missing, and there was a very promising suspect, I try to remain as fair and objective as possible, and look at the situation from all sides. But I'll state right up front that it's pretty difficult to make a case in defense of Jerry Ray Vaughn. You might be familiar with the character of J.R. Ewing from the TV show Dallas, who is considered to be one of the most famous villains in television history, so you really couldn't get any more on the nose than an unsolved missing persons case in Texas where the alleged villain is nicknamed J.R. 
I've covered a few cases where a husband was accused of murdering their missing spouse, but you could understand why an arrest wasn't made, because there was no hard evidence that a crime had even been committed. But here, we have an estranged husband who was the last person to see the victim alive, and the last location where he claimed to have seen her had traces of blood, along with evidence that someone had performed a major cleanup of the scene. Sadly, it was pretty obvious from the outset that Patty had been murdered, but it seems that without her body, the authorities have been reluctant to charge anyone. But let's start from the beginning and look at how this crime might have played out. We know that two months before she went missing, Patty asked for a trial separation from JR, who was known for being controlling and possibly physically abusive. Given the circumstances, it sounds like this was quite a courageous decision for Patty, because she was living in a pretty conservative Christian community where that type of thing was frowned upon. In the weeks prior to her disappearance, Patty had been seen having lunch in public with Gary, and once word got back to her church, they pretty much ostracized Patty and would no longer allow her to sing in the choir, which was pretty devastating for her since she really loved singing. In their eyes, since Patty and JR were technically still married at that point, they took issue with her seeing another man. However, it sounds like Patty at least had a very supportive family since they welcomed Gary with open arms when she took him to the Christmas Eve gathering and were just so pleased that Patty was experiencing true happiness for the first time in a while. It does sound like the trial separation was relatively amicable at first, as JR did agree to move out and let Patty remain in the house with her children, and in spite of their differences, she still wanted the kids to spend Christmas Day with her father. However, I think that once JR learned that Patty was seeing Gary and that their relationship was going well, something in him just snapped. I get the sense that he figured Patty would come crawling back to him eventually, but then realized this might not happen now that she had a job and seemed genuinely happy with Gary. It is quite suspicious that JR gave notice to break his lease and move out of his apartment only a few days before Christmas and then immediately move back into the house after Patty went missing. It seems like he had decided he was returning to that house one way or the other. Now we do have to talk a little bit about Gary, as there really isn't much information out there about him. He was never publicly named in any of the media coverage of the case, and the disappeared episode only referred to him by his first name. It was quite jarring how the episode just casually mentioned that Gary was killed in a car accident, as they didn't go into any specific details, and I have no idea when this accident even happened. But regardless, even though the show presented the situation with Patty, JR, and Gary as a love triangle, I see no reason to consider Gary a suspect in her disappearance. In addition to the fact that Patty and Gary seemed incredibly happy together, Gary had a pretty solid alibi to account for his whereabouts on Christmas Day, and he was nothing but cooperative and helpful during the investigation. I know the authorities have stated that they couldn't completely rule Gary out as a suspect due to his premature death, but I don't think anyone seriously believed he was involved. Now compare him to JR, whose first course of action was to file from divorce from Patty the very day after she disappeared. I know JR said this was only intended as some sort of bluff in order to convince Patty to reconcile with him, but who does something like that immediately after their wife has gone missing? So the official story JR has pushed forward is that he had a heated argument with Patty on Christmas Day, which eventually caused her to get so angry that she stormed out of the house and drove away. The way he sees it, 
Patty eventually pulled over on Loop 1604, possibly because of a flat tire, but soon became a victim of foul play when an unknown motorist stopped to assist Patty and wound up abducting her from the scene. Well, that's the scenario JR wanted everyone to believe, but there are so many issues with it. Of course, the biggest problem is that the van's carpet had been freshly shampooed and there was still water in the seat holders. If some random predator abducted Patty from the side of the road, they're probably not going to hang around to clean up blood evidence inside the van. It was also obvious that the flat tire was no accident and had been purposely deflated. Patty's family even performed an experiment where they inflated the same tire again and it worked perfectly, so there clearly wasn't any damage which would have prompted her to pull over. And even though Patty allegedly drove away from her home on Christmas Day, multiple co-workers passed by that particular location on the morning of December 26th and insisted the van was not parked there until it was spotted at around 1.30pm. Now, I guess one possible explanation for this discrepancy is that after leaving her house on the 25th, Patty crossed paths with someone who did her harm and they spent the night cleaning her van at another location before abandoning it on Loop 1604. But the problem with that theory is that there were also traces of blood evidence found at the house, and since Patty's blood was specifically found inside a mop, someone obviously did a major cleanup job. JR placed himself at the house at the time Patty supposedly left, and as far as I know, he stayed there until she was reported missing. Yet his only explanation for the blood evidence inside the house is pretty much, gee, I don't know how that blood got there. It seems pretty obvious to me that Patty was killed in her bedroom, and her van was used to transport her body somewhere. Someone then went to the trouble of cleaning the blood evidence inside the van, drove it to the side of the road sometime on December 26th, deflated the tire, and then left the scene before the van was discovered. And really, who else could have done this besides JR? I have tried to dream up an alternate scenario where someone else was responsible for Patty's disappearance, but when you look at all the facts, that just doesn't seem possible. The evidence clearly points to JR being the perpetrator. All that being said, there are still a number of unanswered questions surrounding this case. As guilty as JR looks, I'm not entirely sure if he had always planned on murdering Patty on Christmas Day, or if this was a crime of passion. The fact that JR gave notice to move out of his apartment a few days beforehand does indicate that he was planning to return home, but I think he was narcissistic enough to believe that Patty was going to take him back and allow him to move back in. But by this point, Patty had become serious about her relationship with Gary and had no interest in reconciling with JR. She may have finally told JR she wanted a divorce, and once he realized that their marriage was over, that he was probably going to wind up in a custody battle for the children and the house, he went into a violent rage and wound up killing Patty before he covered up the crime. Of course, a complication which has surfaced in recent years is when DNA testing was performed on unspecified items found inside Patty's van, and the DNA turned out to belong to an unknown female who was not Patty or anyone related to her. While investigators have not been shy about sharing their belief that J.R. had help covering up Patty's death and disposing of her body, I'm inclined to agree, because after all, whoever abandoned Patty's van at that remote spot on Loop 1604 would have needed someone else to drive them away from the scene. At one point, 
Investigators stated that they believed three family friends might be involved, though no one has ever been publicly named. But since female DNA was found in the van, it's tempting to believe that it might belong to J.R.'s sister, Marilyn. As you'll recall, Marilyn was supposed to join the Vaughns for Christmas dinner at the residence, but the story goes that J.R. told her Patty wasn't feeling well and didn't want to come out of her bedroom, so he had Marilyn take their children to their other sister's house for Christmas dinner while he remained there with Patty. Well, no one from Patty's family bought this story, because even if she was feeling lousy, they found it doubtful that she would just send off her kids to her in-laws on Christmas Day. And of course, when the evidence technicians were performing forensic tests inside the Vaughn home after Patty went missing, Marilyn was present and seemed to be going out of her way to make things difficult with them. So it's easy to suspect that Marilyn might be involved, if not with Patty's actual murder, than with helping JR cover it up. The biggest wildcard in this story are the three Vaughn children, as it's unclear if they were present at the house when Patty was killed, or if they might know something. Even though JR told Marilyn that Patty was hiding in her bedroom because she wasn't feeling well, there was blood evidence and traces of swipe marks in there, so I think that's the likely location where Patty was killed. She may have already been dead inside the bedroom by the time Marilyn arrived, so JR desperately wanted the children out of the house in order to give them time to clean up the scene. But could the children have seen or heard anything incriminating? Even if they didn't, it must have been a major red flag if JR told them their mother didn't want to see anyone before changing plans and sending them away to have Christmas dinner elsewhere without even giving them a chance to speak to Patty. From everything I've heard about Patty, her children were her whole world and it would have been very uncharacteristic of her to ignore them on Christmas Day. Since JR refused to allow the kids to be questioned by police, it seemed like he was worried about what they might say. Since they cut off all contact with Patty's side of the family and haven't spoken to them in two decades, who knows what knowledge they might have. I must say, I'm always bothered by cases in which one parent is suspected of murdering the other, but is still able to attain full custody of their children. The Vaughn children were 9, 8, and 6 years old respectively, so they were still an impressionable age at that time. JR could have very well told them their mother abandoned them and done some serious brainwashing. The children are all grown adults now and haven't made any attempt to contact Patty's family, even after they've implored them to come forward to share any information they might know about their mother's disappearance. If they do know anything, they either cannot or will not tell anyone. Since JR started living under a different name after he moved to Idaho, the three children could very well be doing the same thing right now, making it more difficult to determine their current whereabouts. Of course, the one thing which has always kept this case at a standstill and held back the possibility of an arrest is the lack of a body. There have been a lot of rumors about what JR might have done with Patty, which includes burying her body in the concrete foundation of an elementary school in Pleasanton, which his construction crew was building at that time. Since this was a multi-million dollar project, some people think that there's no way anyone will go to the trouble of tearing the school apart to search for a body. The idea of getting rid of a dead victim by encasing their body in concrete at a construction project is not uncommon. Hell, you're probably familiar with the urban legend about Jimmy Hoffa's body being encased in the concrete foundation of Giant Stadium, but I really don't think that's what happened in this particular case. 
I'm not saying that deceased murder victims are never encased in concrete. I just don't think it happens in large-scale construction projects involving public buildings. There's a good chance you've heard of the Springfield 3 case involving Cheryl Levitt, Stacy McCall, and Suzanne Streeter, three women who mysteriously went missing from a house in the middle of the night in 1992. The most infamous theory in that case is that the three victims were encased in the concrete foundation of a parking garage at a local hospital, and some people are angry that the police have refused to dig up the garage to search for the bodies because it would be too costly. Well, I've seen some very interesting discussions about this theory on Reddit, where construction experts have chimed in and stated that the odds of three bodies being encased in concrete underneath a public structure are pretty much non-existent. The big problem is that the structural integrity of the concrete would be compromised if a human body was encased in it. When the body starts to decay, it creates an air pocket which would weaken the integrity of the concrete block and ultimately cause structural damage. In other words, if a car were to drive over the spot in the garage where the three bodies were buried, the ground would probably collapse. This same logic applies to the school where Patty is supposedly encased, as the structural integrity would have been compromised once her body decomposed. Also, whenever concrete is poured, the ground has to be prepped beforehand, so even if JR personally oversaw the pouring of the concrete, I'm sure someone would have noticed if a body was there. Hiding a body in concrete is one thing, but doing so at a public institution such as a school is a major risk. Not to mention that this particular school has been searched multiple times, and the tracking dogs have never detected any odor from a decomposing body. And even though JR has been very uncooperative with other aspects of the investigation, he did give his full consent to search the school, which seems to indicate that he has nothing to hide here. Most importantly, records show that the concrete slab was poured four days before Patty went missing, and while records can be fudged, many people work on construction crews, so it would have been easy to verify if the date was false. So in spite of JR's ties to the construction industry, I doubt Patty's body is encased in concrete. I know there was speculation that JR might have buried Patty in the backyard of their home, but searches have turned up nothing. The evidence clearly shows that Patty's body was inside her van at one point, and I'm not sure JR would have placed it in there if he was simply going to bury her on his own property. The fact of the matter is that there was a window of around 24 hours between when Patty was last confirmed to be alive and her van was discovered, so JR had plenty of time to drive a great distance to get rid of her body and cover his tracks. The one piece of evidence in this story which completely baffles me is the red workman's jumpsuit which was found in the van with the letters JM embedded on the back. It doesn't seem like it belonged to Patty, so I have no idea why it would have been left there or how it fits into this story. You'd think those initials might have made the jumpsuit easy to trace, but it doesn't look like the authorities have been able to do so. However, I do have a feeling that it might hold the key to figuring out where Patty is buried. Overall, I guess you could technically classify this as one of the least mysterious cases ever featured on the trail when cold, at least in terms of figuring out who did it. I definitely believe that J.R. Vaughn is guilty as sin of murdering Patty, and the fact that he would do this while she was spending Christmas Day with her children is unconscionable. It's just a matter of recovering her body, or uncovering enough evidence to build a solid case against him. Otherwise, 
I think the best chance to solve this case would be if somebody talked. If any of Hattie's three children were present when she was killed, or know something incriminating, perhaps one day they might have the courage to come forward and share what they know. But there are definitely others out there who know the truth, as it seems very likely that multiple people were involved in helping J.R. cover up the crime. As you can imagine, Christmas has been incredibly difficult for Patty's family these past 22 years, since the holidays serve as a constant reminder of what happened to her. Patty deserves to be brought home, and her killer deserves to be brought to justice, and there are likely people out there who can make this happen by sharing what they know. So if you have any information about the disappearance of Patty Bond, please contact the Bear County Sheriff's Office at 210-335-6000. That's 210-335-6000. Anyway, I just wanted to share one more reminder that our last episode of the year on December 26th will be a special Q&A episode in which I'll be answering questions that are sent in by you, the listeners. So if you have a question you'd like me to answer on the episode, feel free to email it to me under the subject line trailwentcoldqna to robin.warder at icloud.com. That's robin.warder at icloud.com. I'm probably recording the episode sometime this coming weekend, so please send your questions by midnight Eastern Standard Time on Saturday, December the 15th. Also a reminder that The Trail Went Cold is on Patreon, so please visit patreon.com slash thetrailwentcold to learn how you can support our podcast and become eligible for some pretty cool rewards. We've already released some exclusive bonus episodes for our patrons in tiers 2 and 3, including one last month about the death of Kay Hall, and we've got another great one scheduled this month. So to learn more information, feel free to visit our Patreon page. I'd also like to give a special thanks for our most recent listener who has signed up with us on Patreon this week, Kayon M. I also just wanted to give another shout out to my supporters at the Unsolved Mysteries message board at the Sitcoms Online forum and the Unresolved Mysteries subreddit. Need to provide my thanks to Miguel Foote, who edits and assembles this podcast together for me, and Vince Nitro, who composes the eerie music you hear on every episode. If you haven't already, you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or Spotify. So the holidays are getting ever so closer, and join me next Wednesday for this month's final Christmas-themed episode of The Trail Went Cold. (laughs) ¶¶